Coronavirus NZ, a daily stuff podcast. Hey Adam, know what's exciting about today? What's that? Nothing. Zilch, zip, none. Ah, yes, the zero day we've all been waiting for. Welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Monday the 4th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. For the past six years, months, weeks, not sure. Anyway, we've been bringing you the daily headlines, some of the more unusual things about lockdown life, and then we slow it down to take a look at one particular topic. Exciting times, Eugene. Yesterday I clicked, and according to the text I just received a minute ago, soon I shall collect. Soon I will have a wheelbarrow. And bark. There's a terrible dad joke in there, and I just know it. This better be good. Oh, haven't you been complaining about having a sore tooth? Doesn't that mean that soon your bark will be better than your bite? Or something like that? That is authentically hilarious. But actually I've had some success on the tooth front too. To get a dental appointment under level 3, it virtually has to be a life or death matter. They talk about bleeding from the mouth and facial trauma and things like that and the criteria. But anyway, so I haven't been able to get in with my frankly, gently aching wisdom tooth. But I am now provisionally booked in for an appointment next week. So fingers crossed that we are actually in level two by then and I can go. Later on the show, Stuff National Correspondent Steve Kilgallen talks to us about clusters, how they work, why they're so dangerous and why you should perhaps think twice before sharing a salt shaker. But first, what's happened today? For the first time in seven weeks, New Zealand has gone 24 hours with no new cases of coronavirus. At its peak, we hit 89 cases a day. Remember that? But for the past two weeks, we've dropped to single figures. And then today, a big fat zero. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says that New Zealanders will be given two days' notice before we enter alert level two. Cabinet will consider the possibility when it meets next Monday. That's May the 11th. In the great New Zealand takeaway binge of last week, and that was the first week of Level 3, remember, the country munched its way through five weeks' worth of takeaways, it seems. In the first 24 hours alone of Level 3, McDonald's sold 300,000 burgers. That's double the sales for the same day last year. So, Yolgeng, how was your weekend? A uh, uh, bit of a moochie one. <laughs> Rained all weekend, bit of tally. Watched a bit of The Last Dance on Netflix. A uh, couple of runs in the rain. How was yours? Oh, got the fire going. Had roast chicken. Was raining all the time, so didn't really do a great deal. The planned gardening didn't happen. Did get to the beach for a bit of a walk, though. It was it was kind of busy when we arrived, and then the clouds came in and started tipping down. And then everyone sort of went home, as far as I could tell. It was it, it, it felt like a pretty quiet weekend, in a way. So that, that was Auckland, but at the other end of the country, it was a slightly different story. Kamala Heyman is Stuff's Canterbury editor and editor of the press. Hi, Kamala. Hi, how are you? Pretty good. How was your weekend? Did you go fishing on a rising river, throw a big party, get arrested, need to get rescued in a chopper, anything like that? <laughs> uh, none of those things, actually. I did have a birthday party get-together, but it was on Zoom. A few birthdays coming up. Um, everyone's going to have to do it remotely. And we had gorgeous weather. So, yeah, I got out and did a couple of runs on our Port Hills, which was uh, lovely. So let's, let's step through. Uh, New Zealand is in level three, which is basically level four, but with takeaways. But down south, the, the beaches look crazy. What were people up to? 
Yeah, we just had such beautiful weather this weekend. I think it got to 24 degrees yesterday, which is unheard of um, down here in Christchurch for autumn. It was just beautiful. And um, it was the first weekend at Level 3, so it was the first chance really for everyone to, you know, travel a short distance to do, you know, their walks and their bike rides and beach visits. So, yeah, I'm not at all surprised that the hills and the beaches got mobbed. People had been locked out of them for five weeks, but it meant that um, the beach actually at Sumner got so crowded the the police had to come and start moving people along and I was out on the hills a bit and I sort of know some of the quieter tracks so I was quite lucky but I did see I did pass some places where there were just heaps of families out walking and biking and most of them were behaving pretty well actually but yeah it was just the whole of Christchurch was out you know in our popular outdoor places. The police I think were telling people you had to be moving didn't you you couldn't just go and sit down on the beach was that the deal? Yeah, so that was actually a bit new to me. Um, You had to be exercising, so you can travel for exercise. You can't just hang out and watch your mates surf or, you know, make a sandcastle or anything. So I hadn't realised that. So I think we're all learning a bit about what we can and can't do at Level 3. You know, also under Level 3, no parties. And on Friday, Finance Minister Grant Robinson put on his very serious face, told the country, if you're planning a party, don't be idiots. But it seems not everyone took notice. Yeah, I mean, I just couldn't believe it when the police stats came out. They said that they had been alerted to 685 parties just on Friday night. So that's in one um, one night. I haven't got the figures for Saturday yet. One of those parties was a pretty wild affair quite near to where I live in St Martin's. I wasn't invited, <laughs> but apparently um, eight people were arrested and they're going to appear in court maybe even today. And some of them are mongrel mob members and associates. Altogether, police have taken enforcement action against over 500, 514 people for level three breaches since it began. So I, I kind of get the impression people have yeah, really stepped down from level four lockdown. I think we've all gone a bit too relaxed. Well, I mean, yeah, you don't want to get all preachy here, but I guess haven't these people been listening to, I don't know, this podcast or the news or anything? We know that parties cause clusters. That's a good number of the the good-sized clusters in New Zealand have been the uh, people getting together and drinking and weddings and so forth. But think about what happens when even two mildly drunk people get together at a party in a room where there are loads of other people also talking and your voices get raised and the music gets loud and faces get close and spittle is exchanged you know it's it's there's a lot of spit goes on at a party i mean the rules are changing but the rules have have definitely not changed in that area we know that we're not meant to be having parties but at some point we are going to have to figure out what what the rules of of coming together are i mean there's that maybe we need what they've been doing in south korea just recently they put out a, a 68 page guide uh, with advice on how to be in a post-lockdown new normal. Everyday life quarantine is the, is the phrase they're giving it. And I thought this was fascinating. It was a piece in the New York Times was, was detailing this. The, here's some of the advice. So when you go to the movies, refrain from shouting, it says. And when you're at a funeral, bow your head instead of hugging. So I don't know. I guess we're only in level three for a shortish time. But at some time, we're going to have to figure out how to, um, how to gather in a safe way.
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, it is it is going to be a whole new way of this idea of social distancing is quite hard to get your head around. And um, I think people forget that we've still got something like 100 active cases around the country and there are still new cases. And what if that one new case was the person that, you know, you were out at the beach with or, or you know, decide that you would have one of those get-togethers? Yeah, it's, it's one thing to have a bit of fatigue, isn't it? And, and to be clear, this is happening right around the country. We're talking to you about what's happened in Christchurch over the weekend, but it's it's right around the country. And it's understandable that people get a bit of fatigue, but we just, you know, we can't afford to, can we? If if we can't get through this together, you know, if it takes just a couple of idiots and more of us lose our, our jobs and livelihood or loved ones, then that's it feels pretty hard, bit of pill to swallow, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thank you for joining us, Carmela, and uh, all the best with those Zoom parties. <laughs> thank you. So there was an interesting story that developed over the weekend. It revolves around Waitakere Hospital in West Auckland. Late last week, we found out that three staff have tested positive for COVID-19. They were working on the COVID ward where residents from St. Margaret's Rest Home were transferred there a couple of weeks ago. Remember, that's the rest home where there was a cluster. The fact that staff working in the ward had tested positive was concerning enough, but what kind of made my hair stand up in the end? But what, what hair's that, Eugene? The, the ones on my chin, all right? Thank you, Adam. Was when it emerged that staff working with patients in the COVID ward had worked in other parts of the hospital. What did that mean for cross-contamination? But, you know, I'm not a health professional, so what would I know? Then Michael Mora, a journalist from News Hub, who's been doing some pretty astonishing work throughout the crisis, he reported last night that two nurses were speaking out about what had happened. So the nurses said they'd warned management that any nurses working in the COVID ward shouldn't work in other wards. They were worried about the infection being inadvertently spread to other parts of the hospital. But they say those concerns were ignored. Uh, One of the nurses who spoke out told Maura, we haven't been listened to, we felt that we had legitimate concerns at the beginning. The Waitamata District Health Board, which is in charge of the hospital, says nurses working on the COVID ward as well as COVID-free wards was standard policy. But that policy has now changed. Yeah, it seems it should, shouldn't it? I mean, we should be clear that there's no evidence of cross-contamination at this stage. There are always things to complain about in a workplace. But, you know, in New Zealand, it's not easy to get health professionals to blow the whistle like this. When nurses start complaining to journalists about managerial decisions you probably should listen up and take them seriously. So passing time in lockdown hasn't all been about Netflix. Uh, I've been reading a bit. Yeah, and you were reading that miserable-sounding book about bubonic plague? Yeah, The Plague by Albert Camus. I would be lying if I said I enjoyed that. I'd also be lying if I said I read all the pages. It got quite skimmy near the end. But So I, I wanted to move on to something a bit more lively. So I've just started reading in the last few days. I've been reading Wolf Hall. You know, So that's the book-winning novel by Hilary Mantel about Thomas Cromwell, who knocked about with King Henry VIII back in the mid-1500s, yeah, when Henry was doing all that died, died, beheaded stuff with all his wives. Any good? Yeah, it is actually. It's pacey, full of surprises, especially considering it's about quite famous historical figures. But what I hadn't realised until I was about 50 pages in is that this book is sort of about pandemics as well. So far, it's set mostly in London in the 1520s, and various infectious diseases uh, were always doing the rounds at that time. And, and last night I got to a bit where a fairly important character dies of some infectious disease. I'm not sure if it's the plague or something else, but she has a fever in the morning and she's dead by night. Anyway, so her family has to go into a 40-day lockdown. But 
just like the Camus book, which was set in the 1940s, it amazed me how closely this experience from, you know, 500 years ago mirrors our experiences in 2020. So they're talking about social distancing and funeral cancellations and pillocks who want to bring the rules. And Zoom meetings? More or less. I mean, they call it... uh, Career pigeons at the time, but uh, same sort of thing. So they're quickly burying this dead woman so no one else in the family can get sick. And I'll just read a bit. It says that, so the rule is for the household to hang a bunch of straw outside the door as a sign of infection and then restrict entry for 40 days and go abroad as little as possible. And then Mercy, who I think is a servant, comes in and says, a fever, it could be any fever. We don't have to admit to the sweats. In other words, she's trying to pass off the disease as something else. And she says, if we all stayed at home, London would come to a standstill. No, says the main character, we must do it. My Lord Cardinal made these rules and it would not be proper for me to scant them. So um, 500 years on, nothing much has changed. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm reading a book that belongs on a plague reading list too, actually. The The Body, which is by the wonderful Bill Bryson. And his chapter on microbes is all the more fascinating right now. For instance, did you know, Adam, that until 1989, Britain operated a research facility called the Common Cold Unit? No, I did not know that they had a research facility called the Common Cold Unit. Have they cured the cold? No, but they did do some interesting experiments about how viruses spread. There was one where they had a volunteer and they fitted him with a device that leaked an invisible thin fluid out of his nostrils. It was designed to come out at the same rate a runny nose would run. He was then put in a cocktail party situation, an experimental one, I suppose you'd say, and they all socialised. So what, this dude has got something strapped to his head with something tripping down his face while pretending to uh, drink cocktails. Is that right? Something like that. It's not quite that level of detail in the book. But you look, after a while, they used ultraviolet light to show where traces of the liquid were. Basically, it was everywhere, on the hands, head, and upper body of everyone there. Glasses, doorknobs, sofa cushions, basically. Ugh. Yeah, so I guess that's why we have social distancing right now. And that's why we keep getting told to wash our hands, like we're a bunch of toddlers. I feel, I feel like there's a kind of a gap in the show today. What do you mean? Well, ever since we concluded, ever since we wrapped up triumphantly the WTF investigation, Where's the Flower, it feels like the show is, I don't know, lacking that journalistic heft. I mean, sure, there are still some mysteries with WTF. We, we haven't cracked all the details about cream of tartar and sure-baked yeast and baking powder. But, you know, we're going to get there, and that's just, that's just mopping up, really. We need a new investigation. Well, how about this? Seeing as you mention it, there's something we talked about last week that's sort of been bugging me. Where's our Bluetooth app? W-O-B-A. It's not as catchy as WTF. True, but it's arguably more important. I mean, what could be more important than scones? But look, Singapore's got an app. Australia's got an app. The UK's on the cusp of one. We're about to leave level three soonish depending on what happens, and we don't have a New Zealand Bluetooth app for tracing contacts yet. Let's find out where it is. Wobba, wooba, wobba, wibba. Let's just call it woba. Watch the space. Emails. We always welcome advice and direction from readers. Keith Lyons writes to tell us that he is loving the podcast, especially because, quote, it comes out around the time I go for a neighbour. Anyway, Keith reckons we really crushed it with the Where's the Flower investigation and suggests some new directions for our journalism. Could you next look into how the lockdown helped reveal who the local drug dealers were, essential workers it seems for some, and how they were operating 24-7? Well, Keith, we're 
kind of busy with WOBA. 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 But we'll definitely add this to the list of potential projects. Thank you very much, Keith. Did we ever get to the bottom of whether drug dealers are essential workers? No, we didn't. And this is obviously the very first point of the investigation process. Plague Playlist. Right. So this is one my sister tipped me off to. It's the Phoenix Chamber Choir. They're from Vancouver, Canada, and they've put together what looks like the most musical Zoom meeting I've ever seen. One, two, three, four. They get together to sing an a cappella Billy Joel hit with new COVID-friendly lyrics. This is how it sounds. I have been at home in quarantine, It's not 100% a cappella. One of the singers is providing the beat by flicking the lid of a canister of Lysol disinfectant wipes. So this whole thing, everything New Zealand's gone through, could be down to 35 coronavirus cases. What do you mean? Scientists from the Institute of Environmental Science and Research, it's ESR, they've been studying the genetics of virus samples from as many cases as, as they can to try and build a picture of how it's spread here. And they say it looks like New Zealand's COVID-19 outbreak was sparked by 35 or more unique introductions from all over the world. One of the scientists says we've seen them from Europe, from Iran, from North America, and then it kind of spreads, doesn't it? Yeah, and as the virus spreads through a community, you get these things called clusters. So we've all got a bit obsessed with these clusters, haven't we? As we heard about them every day at the 1pm press conferences, you know, such and such cluster is still growing, this one's stopped. So Stuff National Correspondent Steve Kilgallen has done a, a big piece pulling together all that we know about our clusters and also digging into some of the science of it. Hi there, Steve. Hi, guys. G'day. Hey, Steve, you've got a mate who seems particularly obsessed with the New Zealand clusters, haven't you? Yeah, I don't want to um, out his identity publicly, but he has been keeping a spreadsheet tracking all the cases. And I don't think he's alone in that. I've seen plenty of people in Twitter with their homemade graphs. It's like we're all doing GCC maths again. <laughs> um, and I think that's just a case of trying to exert some control over something you can't control at all. But um, all those people have sort of hit on an interesting thing is that the, the more we know, um, the scientists say that the better placed we are. So the more we know about all of this that's going on, the more likely are we've got it under control. But when it comes to clusters, what they do know is we've got 16 major ones in New Zealand and a cluster is uh, defined as 10 or more cases with a linked cause. And we've got 16 of those ranging from stuff in the low teens up to the Maris cluster, which I think topped out in the mid-90s. Just so everyone understands how they work, what's the pattern these clusters follow? Yeah, so that... Almost all of them do do follow a set pattern. Um, I was talking to um, the Deputy Director of Public Health, Harriet Carr, and a scientist called Sean Hendy, and they both said basically the same thing, that there's, a, there's what they call a seed event where a large group of people gather together. Often involves alcohol because alcohol means you um, are more likely to cuddle each other and shake hands and talk loudly and lean into people's ears and all the things that help spread it. And usually there's 20 or more at that event. And they have... Uh, someone who's highly effective at the event who passes it on to between 15 and 20 other people and then they go home and infect their own families and their workmates usually. So it's work and home, the pattern seems to be. 
and that's how most of these major clusters, barring the rest home ones, which operate a bit differently, have, have worked. So we had a wedding, we had a pub, we had a school. These are all the kind of things where if you're asked to predict where it happened, they would be the sort of places. Yeah, and, and a stag do, wasn't there? You mentioned the Maris one, the big one. Can we just have a look at that one in particular? How, how did it start and how did it get so big? From what I understood, that's one of the ones where they perhaps don't know quite as much as the others because they don't know who the index patient for the Maris case is. So the index patient is the person who brings the infection in first. Now, obviously, it must be someone who's travelled in from overseas, but unlike in the bluff wedding case where they know exactly who it was and the mathematic case where I understand they know exactly who it was, the Marist one are not certain, but it will be someone who's come from overseas. And then there was two or three events at the school that helped it spread. There was a, a social gathering of teachers. There was a school fundraising night. There was a theatre production between three or four schools. So they would have been the, the vectors for it to spread. Interestingly, when I got the statistics from the Ministry of Health, the cases from that cluster have mainly just stayed in central Auckland and North Shore with a handful in South Auckland and Canterbury for some reason. So it hasn't travelled the country in the way others have, but they do have more cases now from people who aren't teachers or students at the school than are. So the Maris cluster has, has gone well beyond the, the school walls. What strikes me again and again when I read about the clusters and the spread of the virus is the way that it's it's so random. I mean, you mentioned that if we'd had a giant outbreak like that 500-strong cluster in that South Korean church, everything could have gone very differently in New Zealand, yeah? Yeah, so one thing that Sean Hendy said to me was that if, if something like that happened, then we, we couldn't have done the contact tracing, we couldn't have mapped the clusters. I couldn't have written that story because nobody would have known because it would have overwhelmed us very quickly, especially considering that our contact tracing certainly in the early days didn't appear to be very, very large. And I wrote several stories about um, their failures in the Maris case to, to trace those clusters down. Um, you see that in America, for example. Potentially, we were less likely to get one of those South Korean type outbreaks than elsewhere because our population is more dispersed, it's smaller. That South Korean church was one of those big evangelical gatherings where they're all cuddling each other. And then they're going home and living in quite um, intense surroundings, you know, apartment buildings, that kind of thing. So, we were probably fractionally better chance, but yeah, if something like that had happened, then it's a different story entirely. Even so, though, it's, it feels like there have been moments when we've really dodged a bullet. I mean, there was that Tool concert where somebody was infected, and WOMAD. I mean, what were the chances that you could fill a big field with 15,000 people or however many it was, plus hundreds of musicians and so on, who've all just jumped off international flights, and, and nothing, it appears, nothing came of that. Yeah, I mean, Hendy said if he was picking, he would have picked a concert or a theatre show or something as the big event. I think potentially the, the lockdown came just in time to prevent that. If you look at the Matamata cluster, that starts in a pub and it grows, but then it, it kind of stops. It stays confined to the Waikato. And the Ministry of Health theory for that is that lockdown happened something like three days or four days after that gathering in a pub. So the cluster didn't have chance to gather speed and start, start spreading its tentacles sort of wider. And I think that's probably the case with a few of the clusters, that lockdown came in time to sort of stop them um, growing much faster and much bigger. Stephen, in your story, you had some amazing details. Like there was that story about the German health officials and how they traced an outbreak in, in Munich. Yeah, I really like that. Eh? Um, yeah. And I was kind of looking for that sort of detail here and, and couldn't quite get it. I suspect it will come later, but it was a Munich car parks company which was the source of a large outbreak. And they traced it to a staff member visiting from Shanghai. And they were able to pick up the first three or four 
cases by just comparing her electronic diary and those are the people she'd met. But then the fourth to fifth case wasn't immediately apparent until they mapped where everybody had sat in the staff canteen at lunchtime and one guy had sat with his back to another guy and the guy behind him had asked for the salt cellar and he'd passed it over. And they were pretty confident that was the fourth to the fifth case. That could come later for us because the, there's this talk about how the virus mutates and so you get different strains bouncing around. So it's potentially possible that we'd have one strain say in Bluff and another strain in Marist, and that would give them a bit more confidence in drawing those lines and going, oh yeah, that case is definitely part of this cluster rather than we think it is. And So I wonder if later on we might get some nice stories like that, well, not nice stories, but scientifically intriguing stories of of how all the um, branches of a cluster have been mapped out. One thing that uh, piqued my interest when you are talking about the difficulties of con- the contact tracing for those clusters in New Zealand was... Uh, the problems posed by illegal bubble bursting and also fibs to, to contact tracers. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So Harriet Carr mentioned that, but was, uh, again, a bit reticent to give details, which is fair enough. She said one of the clusters had had an unexpected extra branch added to it post-lockdown when they wouldn't have expected one. The, you know, the, the model would be that it would bounce around within the households of people and stop. It, it emerged in a new household because one house had crossed into a one bubble had crossed into another bubble and then the other aspect she said was that the contact tracing being hard at times because people had been reluctant to be entirely honest about who their contacts had been hmm. she mentioned illegal activities what what sprang to my mind was uh, was infidelity so i imagine it'd be a combination of those two i suppose we could have drug dealing as well if you really needed to uh, get some supplies outside your regular chain maybe it was some illegal surfing or something you know something really illicit I assumed it was um, one family going around and having a barbecue with another family or something like that, you know, along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Because um, it's got to be sustained, though. It's got to be sustained contact, I think. One quick pass should do it, shouldn't it? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> in, in intensity and, t- and type of vector. But we're freely speculating well outside Absolutely. areas of expertise. Yeah. Reckons are us. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't feel scientifically qualified to give you an answer on that at all. It just shows that contact tracing isn't 100% reliable and it does rely on you um, being honest or remembering who you've, who you've met. Look, there, there are a, a small number of cases that aren't definitively related to a particular cluster or, or where they can't trace it back to overseas and uh, overseas arrival. What does that mean? Is this a, a big problem or, or sort of a, a background annoying noise? Now there, I'm not entirely certain, but um, Going back to my oracle, Sean Hendry, Sean Hendy again, he said um, that the clusters tell us lots of things, but it's the it's the small percentage stuff that they don't tell us that is of a concern. So, is there a is there a chain of asymptomatic people going about their business during level four lockdown as essential workers who are all infecting each other? And you know, the clusters don't tell you that. My understanding is every single case must have its genesis in the overseas arrival. So, I'm guessing that those final few are the ones that they just haven't been able to find the link yet and maybe the link is a salt cellar type incident or it is um, an illicit contact that someone's not mentioned or you know that kind of thing like you say there's been there's going to be some really fascinating scientific detective work going on and hopefully we'll hear some of those stories and maybe get to the salt shaker level but uh, thanks very much Steve Corgallum always a pleasure thank you 
That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Monday the 4th of May. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Steve Kilgallen, Kamala Heyman, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. Thanks to you too for listening. You can find us on all the podcast apps and at the Stuff website. And if you want to get in touch, drop us an email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to directly support Stuff's journalism, the company's recently set up a system where you can make a financial contribution via a link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Vison Latashro. Thank you.